nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Paul Gunter, head of Beyond Nuclear, about the French nuclear scandal that has revealed defective nuclear reactor parts that not only have been manufactured, but the fact that their defects have been covered up and that these very same reactor parts have ended up in 19 different U.S. reactors. We'll also hear from Paul what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission so far is not doing about it. And once again, we will get a report from Nuclear Hot Seat's special European correspondent, Sean McGee, based in Ireland. Plus, nuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness. The NRC's Nuclear Reactor Duck and Cover Report on what's gone wrong with those aging dangerous rust buckets this week. And more honest nuclear information than outgoing U.S. President Barack Obama mentioned in his farewell speech. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 10, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off here in the U.S. with a story that sounds a lot better than it seems to me, and that is that New York State and Entergy have reached an agreement for the shutdown of the two aging nuclear reactors at the Indian Point Energy Center. They plan to do it by 2021, meaning we've got a good four years where hopefully nothing goes wrong, considering both are running on licenses that expired in 2013 and 2015. Entergy has agreed to move a set number of spent fuel rods every year from their dangerous storage pools to dry cask storage on site. Hopefully not the whole tech tin can thin canisters that have been so roundly and rightly criticized by many, including Donna Gilmore of San Onofre Safety, while the activist groups Riverkeeper and Scenic Hudson have the right to challenge and take enforcement action against any future violations Entergy may commit at Indian Point. The agreement includes an emergency provision that will allow the reactors to remain open for a maximum of four additional years. The reasons being war, when are we not at war, but a sudden increase in electrical demand, which hasn't been defined, or a sudden shortage of electric energy, the level of which has also not been defined. Lots of loopholes happening here. And while Riverkeeper and Scenic Hudson will be able to challenge any extension of the 2020 and 2021 closure deadlines, there's no saying whether they will be successful or not. Call me a cynic, but I think they all got snookered. 
In Massachusetts, elected officials have called for a public meeting on safety at the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant. This includes the state's attorney general, Senator Edward J. Markey, Congressman William Keating, Governor Charlie Baker, the entire Massachusetts congressional delegation, and numerous Massachusetts state legislators. They are all calling on the NRC to immediately hold public meeting to address concerns about the safety of the Pilgrim nuclear plant, citing a leaked December 9, 2016 email from the leader of the NRC special inspection team that has raised serious questions about Entergy's ability to operate the plant safely. Most recently, Entergy was forced to shut down Pilgrim on December 15 when it reportedly discovered leaks in three of the eight main steam isolation valves, which are used to prevent radioactivity from leaking into the environment during a nuclear accident. While these legislators are saying that the NRC now has an obligation to address questions raised by that email to help assuage growing public safety concerns... I propose the best move at this point is to shut it down now. Put it out of its misery. And us, too. Up to the Hanford site in Washington State, where the U.S. Energy Department said last Friday that its long-troubled attempt to build a plant to process highly radioactive sludge at the former nuclear weapons site in central Washington State will cost an additional $4.8 billion dollars raising the project's price tag to $16.8 billion. The Hanford treatment plant is more than a decade behind schedule and will cost nearly four times the original estimate made in 2000. The government aims to transform 56 million gallons of deadly sludge stored in leaky underground tanks into solid glass, which theoretically could then be stored safely for thousands of years. But the effort has involved an extended history of errors, miscalculations, and wrongdoing. The result has been a massive, partially built concrete boondoggle that has been under a stop work order for three years because of serious technical doubts. You know, this additional $4.5 billion? My mother would call that throwing good money after bad. And how far could this country go towards genuinely clean green energy efficiency with solar, wind, and geothermal if that was the kind of money behind it? After an exhaustive technical review, the Energy Department at the beginning of 2017 ordered fixes for more than 500 problems, some of them fundamental design deficiencies. Construction of the building and equipment was only 78% complete when it was shut down for the review. Again, Shoot it now, put it out of its misery. An article from Reuters states that the U.S. plans to name the nuclear reactors using potentially flawed Arriva parts. Too late. Greenpeace already did the heavy lifting for you. We know which 19 reactors in 11 sites there are. And that's what we will be covering during today's featured interview with Paul Gunter. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Engineers at the U.S. Sandia Nuclear Weapons Laboratory in Albuquerque, New Mexico, have spent the last few years designing and testing the B-61-12, a high-tech addition to our nation's atomic arsenal. Unlike the free-fall gravity bombs it will replace... 
like the one that Slim Pickens rode to glory at the end of Dr. Strangelove, the B-61-12 is a guided nuclear bomb. A new tail kit assembly makes it sound like a toy model where all you need is your own superglue. The new tail kit assembly, which is made by Boeing, enables the bomb to hit targets far more precisely than its predecessors. That's right. This thing goes boom and the world goes splat, but we need to have it just a little bit more precise on where it lands. Now, this next part, I swear to you, I am not making up. Using dial-a-yield technology, that's what they call it, dial-a-yield, the bomb's explosive force can be adjusted before launch from a high of the equivalent of 50,000 tons of TNT, 50 kilotons, to a low of a mere 300 tons of TNT. And then this article states, that's 98% smaller than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima 70 years ago. Oy, what a false equivalency. Yes, Hiroshima was 15 kilotons, and they can make it as small as 0.3 kilotons, but they can boost this baby up to 50 kilotons, and you better believe that if they have the option, they will not dial down. It's just not enough bang for the buck. Now, besides these innovations, get the head twist on this one. The government does not consider the B-61-12 to be a new weapon, but simply an upgrade. You know, nuke warfare 2.0.7, Clippy not included. In the past, Congress has rejected funding for similar weapons, reasoning that more accurate, less powerful bombs were more likely to be used. Yeah, you got to make sure that nuclear arsenal is usable. In 2010, the Obama administration announced that it would not make any nuclear weapons with new capabilities. The White House and Pentagon insist that the B-61-12 will not violate that pledge. Dude, it's dial-a-yield. It's a drone with a nuke. That's new. It's a foregone conclusion that full production commences in 2020, and once it does, the program will cost more than $11 billion for about 400 to 480 bombs, more than double the original estimate, making it the most expensive nuclear bomb ever built. And for a single use. That's a lot of buck for the bang. It's also evil numbnuts, which is why whoever is behind this particular project is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Numbnuts of the Week. Dial a yield. Now let's take a look at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's Nuclear Reactor Duck <laughs> and Cover Report. At Peach Bottom in Pennsylvania on January 9th, the emergency diesel generators were non-conforming with license basis for tornado-generated missiles. It's a plant design problem where specific technical specifications equipment is considered to not be adequately protected from tornado-generated missiles. A tornado could generate multiple missiles that could strike one or more of the four emergency diesel generator exhaust stacks. That could result in crimping of the stack, which could affect the ability to perform its design function should a tornado occur. And that's to provide emergency power 
And if they don't do it, that's what took down the three reactors at Fukushima. It's being reported as an event or condition that results in the nuclear power plant being in an unanalyzed condition that significantly degrades plant safety and could have prevented the fulfillment of the safety function of structures or systems that are needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident. <coughs> and at Prairie Island in Minnesota on January 4th, a non-licensed employee supervisor had a confirmed positive for a prohibitive substance during a random fitness-for-duty test. The individual's unescorted access to the plant has been denied. Yeah, but has he been fired? Duck! <coughs> Over to Japan, where Niigata Governor Ryuichi Yoniyama met on January 5th with top executives of Tokyo Electric Power Company for the first time and reiterated his opposition to restarting the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear power plant. Yoniyama told the chairman and the president of TEPCO, it will be difficult to approve the restart as long as the causes of the accident at the Fukushima Number 1 nuclear power plant are not verified. In the present circumstances, I cannot accept the restart. Hooyah! And now here's Nuclear Hot Seat's special correspondent on European issues, Sean McGee, based in Ireland. In a tumultuous week for the European nuclear industry, we're seeing in France Arriva under pressure, and the French government is promising to bail out the actual company. Now, what's happening is the European Commission is putting some question onto the legitimacy and legality of this bailout procedure. But in the meantime, we're seeing that the UK bill payer paying for their electricity bill via EDF may find their bills going up to help pay this bailout if the European Commission's challenge falls flat. Now, in the UK, we're seeing an increase also of security measures in nuclear plants, and specifically in the area of Fastlane in Scotland, which is a submarine base for nuclear submarines. We're basically seeing military police being placed in civil areas surrounding the base, and these untrained police to, that would not be able to deal with the public in the same way as the Scottish civil police may cause problems in the future and certainly cast a shadow over civil policing in the UK in general. Now, this week also we've seen a report from Switzerland that similar procedures for security will see nuclear power plants in Switzerland getting extra guards to protect from terrorism and other issues. And, of course, these costs will go to the taxpayer as well. In England, we received a report that the military police, who currently are looking after the AWE, nuclear weapons base, in the south of England, have had a report of malpractice within their ranks, and many have been laid off. So there seems to be a shortage of these military police, and we wonder where the military police will be taken from, whether it will be from territorial units, who will be less well-trained, even than the full-time military police currently used by the Ministry of Defence in the UK. Going to Hungary, we see a nuclear power plant called PAX-2 has been funded by the Russians, and the European Commission once again is coming in and challenging the issues, and today has actually cast doubt on the viability of this project and the legality within the European Framework Treaties. In the European Parliament, the report states that a Polish MP and various other MPs have been working together to stop information coming out that may allow us to see 
how the actual agreement was originally made. And of course we see the Euratom Treaty being used, which would sideline any other tenders for other energy sources. This has been challenged by the Green Party in Hungary, and they wish to allow cheaper energy sources to be tendered for this project, and not just exclusively between American and Russian nuclear companies. This could stop the Hungarian nuclear program in its tracks, and if the European Commission carries on, there are other meetings to be had, it may well eventually mean that the Euratom Treaty could not be used to sideline these other much cheaper renewable energy sources. And of course we are including the fossil fuel gas in that as well. And next door in Belarus we see that the nuclear deal with the Russians may also be challenged because as Belarus has now started to make moves to come into the European Union that the same rules will apply to Belarus as are currently being applied to Hungary. And we will be discussing in future reports the Euratom Treaty in more detail and health challenges to the Euratom Treaty as well as financial ones that are being made by the European Commission now. In a recent report from Belarus, from Associated Press, we see that the right of freedom of expression has been challenged concerning a report by AP originally about the contaminated milk scandal where radioactive cesium-137 was found in the milk and the Belarusian government and judiciary have both conspired together to try and cover this issue up. And lastly, in a move by the Belarusian government, uh, as visa requirements are reduced, uh, we'll hope to see more tourism in the Chernobyl area. But one last word from Chernobyl Children's International, based in Ireland, who deal with the children with heart defects and disabilities from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. They would say that after the Chernobyl dome has put over the actual disaster site, that we don't lose track of the long-lasting problems that still will occur in that area. The radionuclides last for a quarter of a million years. This is Sean McGee reporting on behalf of Nuclear Hot Seat as the European correspondent based in Limerick. Thanks, Sean. We'll have a link up to Sean McGee's website, European News Weekly, with further comments on these stories. The link will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 290. This piece of news, which we just received shortly before going into the studio tonight, Alexei Yablokov, the towering grandfather of Russian ecology, who worked with Bologna to unmask Cold War nuclear dumping practices in the Arctic, has died in Moscow after a long illness. He was 83 years old. As a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences, Yablokov was also the lead author of the 2007 book Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment. The book presented the conclusion that the 1986 Chernobyl disaster was responsible for 985,000 premature deaths, the boldest mortality tally to date, and he got there by analyzing 6,000 source materials on the accident, none of them ever having been published in English. The English edition of the book was edited by Dr. Janet Sherman. We'll have more on Dr. Yablokov's life and his importance to this movement on next week's Nuclear Hot Seat. We'll have our featured interview in just a moment. But first, a reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your donations 
to help us keep bringing you the verifiable nuclear news, along with interviews and an attitude that speaks truth to power. This is the show that you've grown to respect and rely upon for your weekly dose of nuclear news, leavened with as much humor as we could possibly and ethically get into it. So help us keep bringing you all the bad news about nukes and the great news about actions taking place around the world by sending a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. When you get there, click on the big red Donate button and follow the prompts. It's real easy. Whatever you can do to help, from my heart to yours, much gratitude. For this week's interview, we're talking with Paul Gunter, who is Director of the Reactor Oversight Project for Beyond Nuclear. Paul specializes in reactor hazards and security of operating reactors, prevention of new reactor construction, regulatory oversight, climate change, the nuclear power, nuclear weapons connection, and so much more in terms of organizing and movement building. After many years of crossing paths with Paul and a few inadvertent brief blibbits I was able to get from him for the show, I'm delighted that I finally got to conduct a full interview with him and in the process learn about yet another danger we face at nuclear reactors, this time because of faulty manufacturing and cover-up lies. Paul Gunter, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, Libby. I appreciate being here. Let's start out with a little bit about you so the listeners can get to know the man behind the name who's been mentioned so often on this show. What is your background, and how did you become involved in nuclear issues? I come at this as a community organizer and an environmental activist. It really all began when Public Service Company of New Hampshire, back in uh, 1975, announced that they were going to commence construction of the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant in Seabrook, New Hampshire, on a sensitive saltwater estuary. I became involved in public education and public direct action campaign under the uh, organization of the Clamshell Alliance, where you know we recognized that legal interventions were our bake sales against uh, the utility's ability to litigate using ratepayer money. We recognized that the licensing process was rigged, and so we took to the streets and we occupied the construction site in a protracted nonviolent direct action campaign from 1976 through 1990. And over 4,000 people were arrested. Uh, I was arrested for criminal trespass and um, essentially principled nonviolent site occupation for the initial construction site. And then after construction commenced, we had 20,000 people on site, as reported by the New York Times. In June 24, 1978, we had a uh, legal occupation of the site and a massive rally. And uh, over the course of those direct actions and mass rallies, the uh, anti-nuclear movement was born out of the Seabrook actions, essentially. And there were alliances that sprouted up all over the country, including our sister alliance, the Diablo Canyon campaign. That was a period when, in New Hampshire's case, uh, four utilities went bankrupt building this nuclear uh, reactor. One of the units was eventually canceled just out of tremendous cost overruns and protracted delays. The Seabrook nuclear power plant where it was offered at $900 million 
for the completion of two 1,150-megawatt reactors. They wound up canceling Unit 2 at a sunk cost of $900 million, and Unit 1 was completed for just under $7 billion. So that construction project and, and others like it that followed proved that nuclear power is the most expensive, exorbitantly expensive prospect for generating electricity by boiling water that's ever been conceived of. And essentially that marked the end of the era of nuclear construction in the United States. The protests were synchronized with this larger awareness that nuclear power was the most exorbitant way to boil water that has ever been conceived. It's priced itself essentially out of construction. Standard and Poor's and uh, other credit rating agencies announced that if you were to say you were going to build a nuclear power plant, that your credit rating would automatically be, be downrated. Later, you know, they tried to do this renaissance effort for nuclear power, but it just produced the same relapse. Essentially, the nuclear power is not sustainable in, in terms of it's just too costly to build, takes too long, and the cost of maintaining nuclear power is increasingly more prohibitive as these plants get older. So being a part of that initial movement, I got some notoriety and came down to work in Washington, D.C., which is where I've been since 1991. How did this lead to Beyond Nuclear? And tell us what the foundation of the group is, what its stated mission is to focus the work. Well, in 2007, the group was founded in uh, an effort to make a uh, closer connection between the, um, essentially that uranium is the currency of a coin whose flip side is nuclear weapons and nuclear power, and that the trafficking of uranium for the so-called civilian purpose of nuclear power to generate electricity essentially traffics the same currency for building nuclear weapons. That's the link that we've continued to forge, is that nuclear weapons disarmament begins with closing down nuclear power plants. That's the uh, the public awareness that we seek to expand upon right now. Nuclear power is being offered as a solution to global warming, but if we're going to uh, actually address a climate change issue with a global technology, nuclear power is certainly not the choice because it means trafficking the proliferation of nuclear weapons, both uh, you know, just by a gentleman's agreement through the Non-Proliferation Treaty Act same act uh, provides the inalienable right for a country to pursue nuclear power. So it essentially defaults that nuclear weapons material come into a non-proliferation treaty as an inalienable right of that country. And that's how Korea, North Korea essentially, you know, they entered the NPT, said that they would get nuclear materials for a peaceful purpose, and then essentially bowed out. And now we're looking at a nation that initially had declared is now a nuclear weapons possessor. So that's our general aim at Beyond Nuclear, is that we need to move beyond nuclear power and nuclear weapons and to do it simultaneously. What kind of changes have you seen since the founding of Beyond Nuclear in terms of public awareness or government sensitivity? Have we been moving forward, or is this like bailing the Pacific with a teaspoon? 
I think there's been considerable progress on ending nuclear power, despite the many efforts of the industry to revive. But certainly are not going to go away. This industry is notorious for uh, being at the grave's edge and pulling back. But right now, we're witnessing the, the struggle of the nuclear era come to an end. We've seen recent permanent closures for nuclear power just last year. Fort Calhoun in Nebraska uh, is closed. Before that, it was Vermont Yankee in 2014, Kiwani in 2013, Crystal River 3, 2013, San Onofre 2 and 3, also 2013. So we're still seeing permanent closures and more early closure announcements. Uh, Diablo Canyon it's a plan to announce closures for 2024 and 2025. Just this January 9th, uh, 2017, uh, Intergy announced the early closure of Indian Point 2 and 3 in New York for 2020 and 2021. Pilgrim uh, in Massachusetts closing in 2019, Oyster Creek in 2019, and next year Palisades in Michigan is, is announced early closure. So we continue to see the closure of, a, of an aging industry, industry that's ramping down. But at the same time as these accelerated closures, this industry is getting older and it continues to degrade. And that age-related degradation erodes into these uh, operational environments. And, you know, that's what we're seeing most recently now in France, where we've been following uh, since October 2016 that very large steel components within French reactors have been now shown to have defects that have been there since the original structures. This is like the reactor pressure vessel since these large structures were, were forged. And uh, essentially, the controversy is stirring around the uh, Arriva Le Creusot forge in France, where there are now identified impurities, largely excessive amounts of carbon that were in these steel ingots when the pressure vessels were forged and cast, uh, but other components as well, pressure vessel lids, steam generators, large pressurizer units. They're all, essentially, these defects were built in to these reactors, and, and now we're finding out that a number of those components were forged for U.S. nuclear power stations as well. As you said, there are now well-defined problems that have shown up with the Areva parts that have been manufactured and are being used in the United States. And I find it highly ironic that while the industry is saying, oh, nukes are the way to stop carbon emissions and be carbon free, it's carbon in the steel that's actually leading to the potential degradation of these particular products. What is the background? How is this playing out in France? And how is that impacting the reactors that are already running here in the United States? What we're seeing is essentially a very complicated lesson in chemistry that, in fact, is still being learned. There are a lot of unknowns, but the basics are that in the steel-making process, companies like Le Creusot 
have discovered that levels of carbon are now uh, have stratified within these large ingots, which is the origin of the steel making process. For these very large components, like a 90-foot-tall pressure vessel or these large steam generators, they're still using these large ingots that are cast, and it's now discovered to be a more problematic way of making steel because there's concern about the lack of control of the carbon content that goes into firing these massive furnaces and pouring these very large 150, 180-ton ingots that are then rolled out into these large pressure vessels. Well, the, the carbon levels represent now a vulnerability to these large components after they're subject to neutron bombardment from the radiation off these reactor cores that essentially is changing the chemistry of the steel itself and making it more susceptible to rapid cracking and tearing under the extreme pressures. We're talking 2,000 PSI, pounds per square inch, in, in a typical pressurized water reactor. So the manufacturing process is now being identified as, as uh, creating these, these vulnerabilities in the long-term operation. Again, you know, the aging process of these, these very large components. I think it's important for the listeners to realize that it's not just that there are problems with the steel having this high carbon content, which makes it vulnerable, but it's now been revealed in France that a Ribes Le Creusot plant is suspected of falsifying documents about the components for the reactors. So it's not just that a flaw was there and it's just been discovered. It's that there was a flaw and that the information has been covered up for untold numbers of years while these materials were being sent out to reactors around the world. Exactly. And the fact they have lost now the quality control, quality assurance documentation, essentially, it is more of a concern because once these large components are installed, it's very difficult to document the actual chemical composition. So it's not like these inspections can tell you deep inside these walls of these components that this stratification has occurred or that they've become now vulnerable to cracking, more particularly when you would need it most, when the emergency core cooling system comes on, for example, and you get a thermal shock from cold cooling water hitting a super hot steel wall, you know, right when you're having an accident. These are the typical moments where pressure thermal shock can result in our own Fukushima-style accident, this one being a different scenario, but essentially shattering a steel-walled container like you would a baked wine glass being filled with cold water. That's the kind of rapid fracture that is potentially there in these age structures where the the radioactive bombardment, the, the contamination in these steel walls has resulted in the, the lack of thermal ductility for a super hot structure to respond to temperature flux. 
I think a good example of that that anyone can relate to is if you've ever had a hot frying pan that you've taken off the stove and then put water in to cool, the bottom of the pan will buckle, sometimes quite dramatically and quite immediately. So what you're saying is that the same dynamic is in place here where if cold water comes in contact with this superheated steel inside the reactor, it could shatter with catastrophic results. It not only is the cracking, but it's the incredible pressure inside these, you know, what are essentially huge pressure cookers, only they're operating with tons of radioactive waste inside that's super hot. So these are quite dynamic changes that can occur with this combination of a pressure thermal shock. I understand that Beyond Nuclear, at the end of last year, filed a Freedom of Information Act request. What was that about? So these are the concerns now. You know, we filed, Beyond Nuclear filed a Freedom of Information Act with the United States Nuclear Regulatory Commission in the close of December 2016, basically because the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission had refused to identify the U.S. reactors that have received these defective and possibly fraudulent quality control documented parts. So the NRC is not saying what the reactors are, and yet last year Greenpeace did an investigation, and they came up with a list of at least 19 reactors at 11 sites in the U.S. that are operating with these potentially defective parts. Is this a matter of the NRC trying to bury the Greenpeace report, or did you find information through the FOIA request that allowed you to move forward in identifying what these reactors actually are, which ones they are? We identified the Greenpeace France report, and that was included in our effort to raise concerns around these reactors operating here in the United States. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has refused to identify these U.S. reactors with these French defective parts on the claim that it's proprietary information and, and just a, a protected business secret. But we did challenge that with the December 2016 Freedom of Information Act. We're still waiting for a response from the NRC, but they did identify uh, January 7th, 2017, that they were going to now go ahead and release the names of these reactors that contain these potentially defective parts. So without getting any results from the actual Freedom of Information Act itself, we're basically taking credit that the NRC has reversed its decision and is going to release these names earlier. If we go by the list that Greenpeace came up with, the reactors that they're talking about are Prairie Island in Minnesota, North Anna and Surrey in Virginia, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, Arkansas One in Arkansas, in Florida both Turkey Point and St. Lucie, D.C. Cook in Michigan, in New Jersey Salem, in Missouri Callaway, and in Connecticut Millstone. That's quite a list. Now, if it is released that these reactors have the possibly or probably defective parts in them, what is the next step? 
it sounds like since there could be a catastrophic failure, they should be shut down immediately, which is what Beyond Nuclear is calling for. How does this fit with the NRC? Beyond Nuclear is in the process of calling for the suspension of the operation of the sites that you've named, all of them pressurized water reactors in the United States, until the inspections and testing can be completed to determine if these carbon anomalies are in these components. And then on determination that there are these excess amounts of carbon in these parts, I think the first thing is that they replace at-risk components that are downgraded below the technical specifications in the license. Rather than just calling for a blanket shutdown, which is in fact our goal, but it's something that's certainly reasonable and rational and defensible is, is for those cases where excess amounts of carbon are identified in these components in these nuclear power stations. If they're operating outside of their technical specifications, they need to get those parts out of there. And so they should suspend operations until they can test them and replace them if necessary. If a utility wants to continue to operate these at-risk reactors with these degraded parts, particularly below technical specifications, we think that, and we're going to request that they go through a license amendment application process that puts them into an opportunity for the public like us and other groups, local groups around these nuclear stations, to have public hearings that request them to look at if it's actually achievable to revise your design basis document and operate a plant that's uh, unacceptably vulnerable to these fast fracture failures. So we put them through the NRC's own rules and regulations to go through the disclosure process. Those are two reasonable requests. But I would also um, add one other nuclear power plant that was on that list, which is Crystal River Unit 3 nuclear power station in Florida, which also received some of these large defective components. That plant closed in uh, 2013. So it should be put through an autopsy through the emergency enforcement procedures that we're initiating through a request for meetings with the agency to remove these large components and put them through an independent laboratory analysis so we can actually see the carbon contents of parts that were coming out of France and into U.S. reactors. This would be part of this overall inspection and testing process at the operating reactors. But where you can't do destructive analysis on Three Mile Island as an operating reactor, Crystal River, you could take sections of steel and actually, you know, cut it right out of the potentially defective part and, and look at it in a laboratory setting. To date, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the industry have been reluctant to actually do that kind of forensics on these dead nuclear power stations. What, if anything, has been the response from the nuclear industry or the owners of any of these reactors, especially since word came out of the falsification of documents? 
the industry in France, as well as here in the United States, continue to downplay the susceptibility, the vulnerability of these large components, the loss of fracture toughness of these materials. That continues to be the attitude of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the U.S. nuclear industry is just to continue to operate these things without any stepped-up inspections and testing. That's why we're calling for, through the petition process, for emergency enforcement actions to put the industry and to put the agency on notice that these are special circumstances that require stepped-up inspections and testing, the industry and the agency are going to oppose us on that without question. We continue to see that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission puts production margins ahead of safety margins. It needs to be confronted, but it's part of a much larger problem than just these particular defects. The regulatory system itself, we continue to struggle with the, the fact that the uh, federal government is a, is a captured entity of the nuclear industry, and we, we see this across the board. It's what is in effect right now. There are procedures, and we can build documentation, both force disclosure on the industry of what are the margins and what needs to be done. Speaking of what needs to be done, what can we do? What can the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to help add our voices to the demand for a shutdown until and unless there is an examination of the potentially defective parts? Beyond Nuclear is reaching out to organizations and individuals in each of these reactor sites Particularly, we're interested in getting organizations around, say, for example, the Millstone Unit 2 nuclear power plant in Connecticut. We're going to, again, submit a petition to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It'll be posted to our website, beyondnuclear.org, and we're requesting these hearings to force the industry into disclosure and uh, to see you know, how much of the margin is actually left in these nuclear components. We've been putting this out in the uh, media as well as the social media sites. There is a way for the public to directly participate by going to our website and looking up the 2206 petition process that we're involved in with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Let's make it easy. You send me the link. I will post it on Nuclear Hot Seat under this episode. That way, people can just click on there, go to the petition, sign it, and then pass that link on to others. How would that be? That'd be great. But just to note that once the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission receives and accepts our petition, it sets into process a series of public meetings that are posted and archived on the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission's website, nrc.gov. Those hearings will also be available for the public to watch. So, you know, again, this is a very important process of disclosure that strives to both educate the public and, and advocate for the communities around these nuclear power plants and the much larger areas downwind that would 
be at risk if and when these components fail. Paul, one other question that has come to me in listening to you. You spoke about the demonstration in 1976 in Seabrook having attracted 20,000 people, which is pretty astonishing compared to whatever we've been able to get in more recent years. There is now talk, it's in the early stages, but there is now talk about having a big anti-nuclear rally, probably in New York City, possibly as soon as June. How do we get back up to that number and exceed it so that we actually have a voice and have some clout as a major political movement, a major anti-nuclear movement. You know, I think that we have to understand that social environmental movements, it is in fact, you know, our history that the anti-nuclear movement grew out of concerns and used the tactics of the civil rights movement, the movement to oppose the Vietnam War, all those various movements uh, that preceded our demonstrations in the 1970s through the 1990s, you know, we had 4,000 people risk arrest, take arrest at the Seabrook construction site and in front of the gates of that nuclear power station. We did turn out tens of thousands of people in legal rallies that were negotiated with the state of New Hampshire and public service company of New Hampshire. We need to continue to build on this history, and there are a host, a whole host of movements right now that are important to the overall health and future of our planet. The nuclear issue is one of them. You know, we also remember that a million people assembled in Central Park in the early 1980s in New York to oppose nuclear weapons. So it is possible. These movements do not happen overnight, though, but in a social media-rich environment now, you know, whereas we started out with mimeograph machines, I, I, would, I would think that it's completely possible to build these large movements and, and mass rallies and principled nonviolent civil disobedience actions. I think it's completely possible that with this incoming administration, I think that it's possible that we can mobilize principled resistance, nonviolent direct actions, if he wants to try to revitalize the nuclear industry and the nuclear weapons industry. But, you know, these are ongoing struggles that will just need to be tested as the problems present. We do believe that there certainly is more need now for principled resistance and mobilization than there was in 1976. That was over 40 years ago, and there is much less margin for safety, more margin for hazard with the operation of this aging and decrepit nuclear industry, particularly when there are defective parts now suspect that have been going into these reactors that are vulnerable to routine operations and can fail or would be unable to respond uh, as intended in the event of a severe accident. You know, we're now entering into the breakdown phase of the nuclear industry 
when, in fact, our protests in the 1970s were, were actually part of the break-in phase. And at both ends of that bathtub curve, as it's described, when you have new appliances, be it toasters or nuclear power stations, that break-in phase can be fraught with failure, like at Three Mile Island Unit 2. It had only operated three months when it had its accident in March of 1979. Now we are in the breakdown phase, where these plants have been operating now many over 40 years. We continue to drive these nuclear power stations, uh, particularly through the aging process. It's like looking through your rearview mirror of your car. You do not know, we do not know what's coming in terms of cracking that's happening at these micro levels on these very large components, which is one of the big concerns with this uh, Lakersoft Forge. And if, in fact, they're introduced to accident conditions, certainly not with confidence backed up by quality assurance documentation that these components will fail. That's the big concern. Well, Paul, I think I speak for an awful lot of people who are grateful that you and the organization are doing this work and following up on this one. And we will do our best to keep listeners informed because if we're talking about 19 reactors in 11 different communities that may have compromised, dangerous, prone-to-failing parts in them. We need to get on the stick and move forward on this one because all it takes is one failure, and we've got another catastrophic problem on our hands. Exactly. Paul Gunter, I want to thank you for taking so much of your valuable time today and sharing it with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much, and no nukes. No nukes, indeed. Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear. We will have a link up to Beyond Nuclear at our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 290. That's 290. And that petition Paul mentioned is just about to be launched. As soon as it is, that will be up on the website as well, a direct link. Of course, this program would not happen. None of this work would get done without your support. So please, help Nuclear Hot Seat start the new year right with a donation of any size. We make it easy for you to do. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and know that we are grateful for anything you can contribute. And if a financial contribution is not possible today, we could always use encouragement and support because it all helps and is always appreciated. Activist shout-out! Mark your calendars. There's going to be a conference on April 7th through 9th in Huntsville, Alabama. Pivot Towards War. U.S. Missile Defense and Weaponization of Space. Mm-mm-mm, just sounds like a fun, wild time. Sure beats spring break in Daytona. This is an event put on by our friends at Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. The head of that group, Bruce Gagnon, provided a profound interview on nukes in space for Nuclear Hot Seat number 276 on October 4th of 2016. That's well worth the listen. And if you're not doing anything and can get into the neighborhood April 7th through 9, the neighborhood being Huntsville, Alabama, come on down and join them. 
Here's today's final thought. Jan Budart, who is on the board of Nuclear Energy Information Service, NEIS in Chicago, provided the following quote, which is well over 100 years old and still highly appropriate. Let me give you a word on the philosophy of reform. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all-absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other tumults to silence. It must do this, or it does nothing. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the earth. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without demand. It never did, and it never will. Find out just what people will submit to, and you have found the exact amount of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue until they are resisted with either words or blows or both. The limit of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. Frederick Douglass This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 10, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from motherjones.com, riverkeeper.org, capecodtimes.com, latimes.com, reuters.com, gizmodo.com, usuncut.com, deunrenard.wordpress.com, asahi.com, english.kyotonews.jp, nuclear-news.net, miningawareness.wordpress.com, bologna.org, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission event report, sent to us courtesy the work of Erica Gray, and the big-hearted, truth-speaking planet protectors who gather at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, which you are all invited to join, like, and then share our posts with your loved ones. You can also share those posts with people who love nukes, if you just want to gripe them off. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, Reminding you that Nuclear Hot Seat is downloaded in 112 countries, which means the whole world is watching what's going on with nukes. Now that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call, don't go back to sleep. And let's get to work, because we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Nuclear.
nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.